As I said in the announcements, this morning's sermon is really a continuation of last week's sermon on the topic of abortion. I want to also read for you from James chapter 1. This is James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we do ask that you would speak to us words of truth and wisdom through your word. May we be transformed by the truth you speak to us that we may live more faithfully like Christ Jesus, that we might imitate the Savior, the one you sent to redeem us, the one who is now the King of the world. Father, may we live faithfully as his servants, subjects in his kingdom. And Father, may we spread the good news of his mercy, his transforming grace. This we pray in his name. Amen. Last week's sermon really explained what abortion is and why abortion is wrong, why we as Christians are opposed to abortion. And if you weren't here for that sermon last week, I'd encourage you to listen to it. I think this sermon will make more sense with that one. Uh, But uh, this week I want to continue talking about abortion. I want us to consider how we should respond to abortion, to the abortion crisis in our land. Abortion is so often treated almost exclusively as a political issue. And it certainly is a political issue. It's more than that, but it is political. Uh, Getting laws passed that either greatly restrict or even completely outlaw abortion is definitely something we should work towards. Uh, Getting Roe v. Wade overturned is a noble goal. And, And Christians in our land have been working now for about a generation to do that. The law that our state here in Alabama uh, just recently passed is a significant victory. Uh, certainly one we should uh, be thankful for. But the ultimate goal is not just changing laws so that abortion becomes illegal. It's really changing minds and hearts so abortion becomes unthinkable. The political aspect is important. Civil law, after all, has a what you could call a pedagogical function. The civil law serves as a kind of teacher. Uh, it trains. It instructs. Many people will, will assume that if something is legal, it must be okay. If the state sanctions something, it must be good. So we should keep working that political angle uh, for sure. And whatever else we might say about God's purpose for civil government, Romans 13 makes it clear the state has been given the sword to protect the innocent and to punish the wicked. And children in the womb are most certainly innocent, and those, so they should be protected by the power of the state. To not do so is a gross injustice. Uh, it deforms our whole society. A society that sanctions abortion is fundamentally unjust, and you cannot build a society of peace and harmony when you have that kind of injustice right at the foundation of the whole thing, when the most vulnerable and innocent within your society can be freely slaughtered. Uh, Mother Teresa, I think, was getting at this when she said the greatest destroyer of love and peace is abortion. She said any country that accepts abortion is not teaching people to love, but to use violence to get what they want. She said if we accept that a mother can kill even her own child, 
How can we tell other people not to kill one another? Your whole society is violent at a fundamental level. Your whole society is thrown into moral chaos and confusion when abortion is legal. And further, I would add this, a nation that so blatantly disregards God's law and God's gift of life by allowing children in the womb to be killed can expect God's judgment. God is perhaps being patient with our land right now. But do not confuse divine long-suffering with divine indifference. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. God hates abortion, and God will judge. Nevertheless, abortion has its fierce defenders, as we all know. The law recently passed here in Alabama uh, created a firestorm of response uh, on the part of pro-abortion politicians and other cultural figures. This is just a few examples of this. Uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand said of the Alabama law, this is a war on women, and she vowed to fight back. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren said that this ban is dangerous and exceptionally cruel, and the bill's authors want to use it to overturn Roe v. Wade. I've lived in that America, and let me tell you, we are not going back, back, not now, not ever. We will fight this, and we will win. Uh, Representative Nancy Pelosi said of the Alabama law, women's rights are under attack. This relentless and cruel assault on women's health is designed to force a court battle to destroy Roe v. Wade. She said, we will be ready to defend health care and women's reproductive freedom. It's not just the politicians, though. The uh, Hollywood, the celebrities in our culture, uh, many of them said the same kind of thing. So here's one of them, John Legend. Uh, said these state houses, like in Alabama, these state houses are waging an all-out war on women and their right to control their reproductive decisions. This is awful. Uh, Alyssa Milano said there have been nearly 30 bans on abortion introduced, passed, or signed into law in state houses around the country this year alone. This is Trump's anti-choice agenda and part of the GOP's war on women. That's how it's framed. Laws that restrict or outlaw abortion are considered to be a war on women. Why this strong response? Abortion is a controversial issue not just because a baby's life is at stake, but because a way of life is at stake. We're told that to outlaw abortion is to discriminate against women. You hate women. You're trying to control their bodies. It is a war on women. Never mind the fact that at least half the babies who are aborted are uh, are girls, would grow up to be women. It's still a war on women to outlaw abortion. The reason abortion is so controversial in our culture is not just because the child's life is at stake, but because abortion is all tied up with our view of what the good life really is. It's all tied up with our views of marriage and of manhood and womanhood, fatherhood and motherhood. It's all tied up with our views of sex and family. Really, you could say abortion brings with it a whole culture, a culture that has rightly been termed, I think, a culture of death, because it's a culture that not only kills babies, but it kills the family. It kills marriage. It kills motherhood, and it kills fatherhood. And so if we are going to be holistic in our response to abortion, as we must, we have to not only make the political case against abortion in the public square, we also have to promote a culture of life 
in our churches and in our families. And that's what I really want us to consider this morning. Responding to abortion is not just a matter of voting and protesting. Uh, it's really about living a certain way. And that's what I want us to focus on. This is what I want us to focus on. Um, <clears throat> So abortion uh, has been legal for a generation now. Uh, we have been dealing with this culture of death for about a generation. If we are to build a culture of life in its place, what are we going to do? What's that going to look like? We need to understand that God has made men and women uh, different. God has made men and women to complement and to complete one another. Uh, you can think of it this way. I hope this is not too crass for a sermon, but this is one way to think about it. Every one of us has certain bodily systems that are complete. You have a complete nervous system and skeletal system and circulatory system. You don't need another person to help you pump blood uh, through your body. But no one of us has a complete reproductive system. Man has half of it. Woman has half of it. And a man and a woman must come together to complete it. That's God's Design for men and women to come together in marriage to complete one another and ordinarily to bear children together and raise them together. This is not just a woman's issue. That's what we hear all the time, is it not? That this is a woman's issue. And so therefore people would question whether or not I as a man could actually even speak to it. Um, people would question whether or not I as a man have a right to speak to this issue. But the reality is, this is not just a woman's issue, it is a man's issue as well. And if we are going to respond to the issue as we should, men must be involved in that response. Uh, men and women can't be isolated from one another the way that that kind of rhetoric suggests. Every child that has been aborted has a father just as much as a mother. This is not just a woman's issue. It is a man's issue as well. But there's something else. If, if somebody were to say, look, you're a man. You can't speak to this issue. After all, you can't get pregnant. So how dare you speak to this issue? That claim implies that this is a woman's issue because women alone have the experience needed to speak to it. But this issue is not really about a woman's experience. It's about truth and lies. It's about right and wrong. And truth is objective. Truth is not male or female. Truth is not rich or poor. Truth is not black or white. Truth is truth. Women don't have a different truth from men. Men and women share the same truth. We live in the same reality. We share the same moral laws. We live under the same God in the same uh, creation. The captivity of our culture to what could be called identity politics is a terrible injustice. Identity politics assesses truth claims based on one's identity, which group you are a part of. And so each group really has its own truth. But that's not how truth works. Our access to truth is not determined by our social location. Truth is equally accessible to everyone. Truth is truth. For everyone, And so, no, this is not a woman's issue. It is a human issue that involves men and women equally. 
it is sad that so many men have been silenced by that rhetoric. They've allowed themselves to be silenced by that rhetoric, that this, this is a woman's issue, and so they've been willing to go silent, when really, as we'll see, we must have men involved. We need men to speak to this issue. Men are called to protect and provide for women and children, and so men must play a role in stopping abortion and speaking out on this issue. If we're going to build a culture of life, we have to be willing to speak the truth. We have to speak truth against our culture's lies. We have to speak for the speechless. We have to take action on behalf of those children who cannot act for or defend themselves. We have to not only speak truth, we have to be willing to act on the truth we know. I'm sure all of us would like to think that if we had lived in Germany during the time of the Holocaust, we would have spoken up. I would have been one of those brave few to act courageously to defend the lives that were at stake. Uh, I would not just have gone along with it. It's easy for us to imagine ourselves as heroes in another time or place. But here we have our own cultural holocaust. What are we doing about it? How are we acting courageously to bring an end to it? Are we acting on the truth we know? In rejecting the culture of death and building a culture of life, we have to practice compassion. James 1 describes this. In James 1, we see part of our calling as the church, as the people of God, is to care for widows and orphans. That is, to show practical kindness to those who are in crisis situations. To become family for those who have no family or whose family has broken down. We have to show mercy to broken people in broken situations. While opposing abortion, we can be kind to, we must be kind to those who are wrapped up in this sin. That includes those who are pregnant and considering abortions. It includes those who have already had abortions. It includes those who work in the abortion industry. Now, many of those people in those situations are very brazen in what they do, very brazen. There's the whole, you know, shout your abortion movement. And we can leave those people to God, even as we seek to be kind to them as well. We can leave them to God. But many people wrapped up in this sin of abortion know they are broken. They need to hear about God's mercy. They need to know there is hope. Frederica Matthews Green uh, tells the story of one woman who had an abortion who said this afterwards. She said, everyone around me told me they'd be there for me if I had an abortion. But no one said they'd be there for me if I had the baby. It ought not to be that way. There's a brokenness there that the church can do something about. But don't just think uh, of the brokenness as out there. There is brokenness in here as well, in the church. In fact, it's interesting And saddening, nationally, most of the women, about 60%, who get abortions profess to be Christians. And I would guess in our part of the country, it's even significantly higher than 60%. Now, maybe we'd say we doubt those professions of faith. Maybe the professions of faith are not all that believable. But it would be very foolish to think Christians are somehow immune to Abortion. It would be foolish to think that Christians who have, say, fallen into sexual sin are never tempted to turn to abortion as a way out. In fact, for many young women, 
The private shame of getting an abortion seems more manageable than the public shame of having a child out of wedlock. Let me talk about shame for just a minute because the abortion issue is all tied up with shame. What is shame? Shame is a form of pain. Shame is to the conscience what physical pain is to the body. Usually, if your body is in physical pain, that's a sign that something is wrong and it prompts you to seek help. Now, there are some people who don't feel physical pain when they should. Like, let's say you hit your thumb with a hammer. If you were to not feel physical pain once you had hit your thumb with a hammer, there's something deeply wrong with you. That's a problem in itself. You ought to feel pain at that moment. It's dangerous not to. So there are people who don't feel shame perhaps when they should. But understand, shame can be helpful when our sense of shame is functioning properly. Shame is a flashing light that says something's wrong. You need to seek help. Just like when you have bodily pain, it's a sign. Something's wrong. Seek seek help. So, of course, we ought to feel shame when we've sinned. That shame should drive us to seek forgiveness and healing, should drive us to confess and to repent. But once we do that, the shame should be gone. Once God has forgiven you, you can let go of the shame. It's shame no more. You should let go of the shame altogether. The problem is sometimes, especially in churches that take their faith very seriously, and that therefore take sin very seriously, sometimes in that kind of context, one much like our own, you could say, uh, people can pile on shame even after God has forgiven the sin. And so shame becomes a kind of weapon. People are made to feel shame even after God has taken the shame away. Churches have to be hard on sin. We have to call sin what it is. But we also have to offer forgiveness. We have to demonstrate what it looks like to experience forgiveness, to be free of the sin, to be restored, to be free of the shame. Churches must be safe places for sinners. Think about the father in the parable of the prodigal son. His home is a safe place for the sinner, for the prodigal. It's not a safe place for sin, but it's a safe place for sinners. And that's how the church should be. The church is and must be a place where sexual sinners know they can find forgiveness, where the shame can be taken away. The church must be a place where prodigal sons and daughters can be welcomed home, a place where the shame can be rolled away. Compassion means caring for men and women who find themselves in crisis pregnancy situations. Compassion means caring for those children who would otherwise be unwanted. That's what James says, to care for widows and orphans. Those unwanted children, they're, they're, they're orphans. The early Christians certainly did this. The early Christians were very clear in their opposition to abortion and infanticide, but they also put their money where their mouth was by taking in babies who were left out to die. Babies would just be left out, exposed to the elements, left to die. And Christians would gather them up and bring them into homes and into families and raise them up as their own. That's Christian compassion. This is the compassion that drives Christians to do foster care, to adopt when there seems to be no other alternative. It's the compassion that drives the formation of crisis pregnancy centers, which has been one of the best things to come out of the so-called pro-life movement. These are all ways to build a culture of life, to show this kind of compassion. 
most women who get abortions don't really want to, but feel they have no other realistic option because they have no support system relationally or financially to help them. Many women who choose to have an abortion do so all on their own. But many others are pressured into it, usually by men, usually by the man who got them pregnant or perhaps by their parents. Many women have been brainwashed by the culture into thinking that abortion will bring empowerment and liberation. If they abort the baby, that will solve their problems. But the reality is far otherwise. The abortion industry is actually profiting off of women's desperation, insecurity, and fear. The scarring effects of abortion are deep and real. The scarring effects spiritually, psychologically, relationally. In fact, providing grief counseling to women who have had abortions is also a huge need and another way to show compassion. We have to show compassion. We have to speak and act the truth. But we must do so in love. One truth we need to speak is the truth that women almost always regret having an abortion. And they almost never regret keeping the child, no matter how difficult it is. I remember when Margaret Ann Lightheart gave her presentation a while back on her work at the Women's Center. One thing she said is just this truth that more women would keep the child if others came around her to make that seem like a viable option. And of course, that's the whole point of the crisis pregnancy centers and other organizations like that, to make it seem like a viable alternative for the woman to keep the child. And I think the fact that Christians have done this so much proves that the accusation you so often hear that, oh, you Christians only care about the child in the womb and not once the child is born, that's just not true. Uh, In fact, a very high percentage of families who are in the foster system caring for unwanted children or children who can't be with their families, a very high percentage of those who adopt are Christians, far higher than the uh, general um, proportion of Christians in the population. We're doing these things, but of course we need to do them more, more fully, more faithfully. There's always more that could be done. And this is how we show our culture, this is how we teach our culture what love really is. That love is sacrificial, love is self-giving, love is practical, love is active. These are all ways we can build a culture of life to understand what God has called us to, to show mercy to those in crisis situations. But what else can we do? I've already spoken a little bit about God's design for us as men and women, but let's explore that aspect of this further. If we're going to build a culture of life, we have to build a family culture. We have to embrace God's design for marriage and family in our own lives. Whenever I pray that the practice of abortion would come to an end in our land, I always try to pray along these lines. Not just that God would outlaw abortion. uh, Not just that children would be spared. And you may have... I've done this on Wednesday night many times. I'll pray specifically that the marriage bed would be honored. That's how Hebrews 13 puts it. Let the marriage bed be honored among all. In other words, let God's design for family and sexuality, God's design for men and women, be honored. And I pray that way because, again, this is not just a political issue. There is no solution to abortion apart from this, apart from rebuilding family life. If we are going to end abortion, if people are going to thrive and flourish, we have to embrace God's design for the family. 
And this means women embracing motherhood. Motherhood has been under attack in our culture for a long time. Uh, to just be a mom is not enough anymore. And so women outsource motherhood and pursue a career because that's what's really meaningful. That's what the culture is saying. But the truth is a woman who gives herself to nurturing and caring for and raising children does an invaluable service, forming and shaping the next generation. Mothers bear and nurture life. Abortion is very obviously the denial of motherhood, the denial of everything feminine. It's unwomanly. Making a home, filling a home with love for your husband and children, that's a good and glorious work. The home is certainly not the prison it's so often described to be. Now, a woman's not limited to the home, obviously. Women can work outside the home, and women can have careers. There's nothing wrong with that. I think you see that in Scripture with people like Lydia, I think you see it with the, with the woman in Proverbs 31. But I think it's also clear that for a woman, the home is going to be her center of gravity. So, for example, Paul in Titus 2 tells young women, commands that the young women be trained to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, submissive to their husbands. That's Paul's instructions. That's his basic job description for young women. And and women need to understand this is a glorious thing to embrace this calling of motherhood, to bear life, to nurture life. At the same time, men have to embrace fatherhood. If abortion is the denial of motherhood and femininity, it's also the denial of fatherhood and masculinity. There's nothing more unmanly than a man who lets the child he's fathered be slaughtered in the womb. Now, the reality is there are a lot of men who like abortion for just that reason. There are a lot of deadbeat men who like abortion, who want abortion to be cheap and legal because it enables them to go on using women for their own sexual pleasure without any kind of commitment. It makes it easier. Abortion underwrites male abuse and exploitation and objectification of women. See, the real war on women is right here. Abortion itself fuels the war on women. Abortion does not actually empower women. It weakens them and leaves them more vulnerable. Abortion does not serve female empowerment, but female exploitation. And many men are happy for it to be legal for just that reason. It's time for that to stop. Men must take responsibility. Men are to protect and provide for women and children. Men have to hold one another accountable in this area. Fathers have to be fathers. To father a child means you now play that role in this child's life. Government programs are not going to be the answer here, even if a safety net helps in some cases. The evidence is clear. An increase in social programs has the aggregate effect of undermining fathers. The paternalistic state subverts fathers either by making it easier for them to walk away, actually incentivizing them to walk away, or by making them feel unnecessary. And this is why the statistics show the more welfare a family receives, the more likely that family is to break up. Very interestingly, there was an article in USA Today of all places this past week uh, that made just this point, actually written by a family uh, attorney. And... uh, 
he makes the point, he makes this point that abortion goes hand in hand with the crisis of fatherhood. And ending abortion cannot happen apart from a restoration of fatherhood. This is what he says in his article. He says, want to end abortion? Hold men, fathers of those unplanned children, accountable. He says, if we are indeed facing a crisis of mass murder in this country, isn't it time we ensure everyone, including men, is pulling their weight to stop it. He says that in his work as a family law uh, attorney, he says he's noticed patterns emerging. Chief among these, many of the people I assist are mothers trying to fix the damage wrought by an absent, neglectful, or abusive man. In each case, my job requires me to ask about the father's role or more often whether he has one at all. And so he goes on to demonstrate that abolishing abortion is going to require the restoration of fatherhood. He says, I welcome nearly all efforts to overturn Roe v. Wade and eradicate abortion from our country. These legislative initiatives are long overdue, and I remain confident that abortion, much like slavery, will one day be regarded as as a terrible blight on our nation's character. Yet a comprehensive, life-affirming culture demands more than simply abolishing abortion. We must also restore the original support system that made it safe for women to choose life in the first place. In this respect, I'm disappointed by the the pro-life movement's languid approach to emphasizing the other equally crucial part of the pro-life equation, fatherhood. It says restoring fatherhood, nature's inbuilt complement to motherhood, is what is needed. And it starts by expecting more legally and socially from our men. He says at the outset we should recognize that it takes two to create life and that both parents share in the responsibility to provide for their children. We often hear, for example, of schemes to make abortion a crime for which the mother or doctor should be punished. But when was the last time someone proposed the same for men who father these unplanned children? So he says perhaps changes in other laws are warranted as well. Laws which would strongly deter men from practicing irresponsible sex. And so he says, this is in USA Today, criminalizing adultery is a good place to start, as is punishing men who shirk their fatherly duties. He says, if we ban abortion under penalty of law and expect women to embrace the extraordinary responsibilities of pregnancy and motherhood, can we not demand the same of our men? I would say, yes, we must. There's another article I saw right about the same time, written right after the Alabama Uh, law was passed that makes the same point. This one's written by a woman. And she starts out by demonstrating that abortion really is based on a commitment to sexual autonomy. Really, it's based on lies about how our sexuality works. But she moves from that to making the same point about fatherhood. Listen to this. She says, to maintain the illusion of sexual autonomy requires us to be at war with not only the science of basic human embryology, but also our very selves, our bodies, minds, and emotions. If sex can be casual, why do I feel so intimately bonded to him? If this is casual, why do I feel so used? If this is casual, why is a baby coming? She says, a funny thing happens when we contort our thinking in a way that denies basic reality. People sometimes accidentally reason their way backward into the truth. And so she points to this uh, person she identifies as a feminist uh, who, in response to the Alabama law, tweeted this out. This is what she said, basically calling on men to be responsible for both the women they have sex with and the children who might follow. This was the tweet. If abortion is illegal, then men abandoning their child should also be illegal. 
If this was a permanent decision for me, then it is for you as a father also. Okay? That woman, that there's the feminist who has backed her way into the truth. That is exactly right. It ought to be permanent for the mother who's now with child, but it's got to be permanent for the man as well. He's got a commitment and a responsibility there because he has fathered a child. He's now responsible to care for that child, protect that child, provide for that child. A man who does not father the children he's fathered is no man at all. And so these articles are exactly right. Restoring fatherhood is crucial to building a culture of life. It's not enough to outlaw abortion. We must promote fatherhood as well. There's a whole culture of death that comes with abortion that has to be dealt with. And it has to be matched and countered by a culture of life. But there's still more to consider here. We must certainly promote motherhood and fatherhood. We have to embrace motherhood and fatherhood. But we also have to embrace children. Our culture is so negative about children. This culture of death is everywhere. And this culture of death views children really as a curse rather than as a blessing. Jesus embraced the children brought to him while the disciples tried to shoo the children away. Well, that's kind of how our culture is, like the disciples, pushing children away. Children are not important. We don't have time for them. We're not going to invest in them. Meanwhile, Jesus is honoring children, embracing children, loving them. You know, it's like the song, red and yellow, black and white, they are all precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children. And we have to love the little children as well. But in our culture, babies are all too often despised. Children are all too often despised. They're not seen as assets, but as liabilities. Not as the future, but as enemies of the future. And so some politicians will tell us it is quite possibly immoral to have children, or at least to have a lot of children, because they're bad for the environment. They use up resources. Okay, That overlooks the fact that our greatest resource will always be people. Our greatest resource is always people. We can't talk about people just using resource resources. People are the greatest resource. Children are the greatest resource we could possibly have. Think about some of the rhetoric that's used about children in our culture. Remember uh, Barack Obama during his presidency once defended abortion by saying that if one of his daughters made a mistake, he did not want her to be punished with a baby. Okay, so what is the child in that scheme? The child is punishment. That's how the child is viewed. Recently, I've heard babies in the womb compared to cancer. I've heard babies in the womb compared to parasites. Okay, I saw a t-shirt online in the last couple weeks or so. Maybe you saw this too. It's a bunch of young women wearing this shirt that says, keep abortion legal. And in the middle of it, it says, parasites don't have rights. That's how the child in the womb is viewed as a parasite. Now, how babies could be described this way is baffling but it's also incredibly dangerous. A child is not a cancer. A child in the womb is a person. At conception, you have a genetically complete human, only needing time and nutrition in order to mature. To treat the baby as some kind of invader or to treat pregnancy as a disease or to act as as if pregnancy could be terminated simply because it's an inconvenience and it's nothing more than a clump of cells, it's incredibly evil. I mean, you're nothing more than a clump of cells right now by that same logic. This is a rejection of God's gift 
of life. And throughout history, there have been classes of persons in almost every culture that's ever existed that have been treated as subhuman. Sometimes it was slaves, sometimes it was Jews, sometimes it was blacks. Today it's children. It's a horrific tragedy, treating the unborn as subhuman. It's a great evil. To build a culture of life means we must love children, our own certainly, and others as well. But we're not doing that, not in our culture at large. In our nation, the birth rate has fallen to an all-time low. Uh, Certainly in this church, we have a lot of children, and that's wonderful that God has blessed us with so many children. But in the culture at large, we're not having enough children, and it's a huge problem. Cultures that fall below the replacement rate never prosper. Many of the architects of the modern world, the philosophers who shaped modern civilization, either never had children or abandoned them. Hobbes, Spinoza, Kant, Rousseau. And this may explain why our modern political and philosophical theories and systems are so often hostile to children. Today, the leaders of many of the major countries in Europe, I can't remember the exact number, it's like eight or nine countries in Europe, their leaders are childless, willfully. Another sign of the West's hostility to children. You take abortion along with homosexuality. What do you have? Homosexuality and abortion are both forms of sterility. They produce no children, no life, and so they ultimately have no future. They're part of the culture of death. To build a culture of life, the only kind of culture that can have a future, we have to love children. We have to be fruitful and multiply. We have to embrace children as gifts from the Lord. We have to love children who are unwanted. We have to bring our own children up in the fear and nurture of the Lord. This is what God calls us to. And this is really what it means to be the church. And that's the last thing I want to mention here. We've got to consider the role of the church. What it means for the church to be the church. Because that's really the most important thing we can do here to build a culture of life. The church has got to be the church. We've got to be what we claim to be. The kingdom of God on earth. An alternative society, a new humanity that models life the way it really ought to be lived. An earthly representation of the triune life of God on earth. But remember what happened when the triune life of God intersected with our world. God ended up on a cross. And the same will happen to us. God entered our world and entered into the pain and the brokenness of the world, and he stooped beneath it, and he lifted it up, and he carried it himself. God in Christ took responsibility for the brokenness of the world. And if we are his ambassadors, we must do the same kind of thing. God is going to use us to continue his kingdom project. The kingdom of God is the culture of life. It's the culture of life we want to build and be a part of. And as God's ambassadors, this is what we must do. This means loving our enemies. But it also means speaking truth to them. This means forgiveness when when there is sin. But it also means accountability and even discipline if needed. This means we need to do all we can to help and encourage others to do the right thing. And we need to be the hands and feet of Christ ourselves. So think think about that woman going into a crisis pregnancy center, not sure what she's going to do, and everybody around her is saying, just just abort the child. That's the easy way out. It'll solve all 
your problems? What do we do? We have to tell that woman not just all the reasons why it would be wrong for her to take the life of her baby. But when she says, well, I can't afford it, we have to say, oh, but we can. We can help. When she says, no one will love me if they know what I've done, we have to say, we will. We will love you. When she says, but I don't know how to raise a child, we come along and say, we can help. When she says, but the guilt and the shame are just too much, we say to her, Christ has come to take the guilt and the shame away. What does our broken culture need? Our culture is broken spiritually. It's broken sexually. What does our culture need? Our culture needs a people, a church, that will point them to Christ. Because Christ is the only hope. He's the Lord and giver of life. His Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. He is the life of the world and the light of the world. And we are called to be beacons Pointing people to Christ. Pointing the world to Him by our words and by our deeds. He is the world's only hope. He is the one who promises to bring in a culture of life, a culture of eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for the gift of Christ, the one who is life in Himself. Father, we thank You for Christ, the forgiveness that He brings, taking away our guilt and our shame. Father, we know we're a broken people. We live in the midst of a, of a broken culture, but we pray that You would make us whole through Christ. We pray that You would use us to bring others to wholeness in Christ. Would You use us to build a culture of life in the world, the culture of Your kingdom. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.